to tying it all up, and then I got to stuck. So we're going to be stuck for on Jacob's life for about three weeks is what we're going to be, and I'll tell you why in a second. Um, we are at the point where we have looked at Joseph from the time he was born till um, as the uh, first son of Rachel. Uh, Joseph's brothers despised him, and so they sold him into slavery. Uh, as a teenager, probably about 17 years old, he finds himself in Egypt, a uh, slave in Potiphar's house. He faithfully serves Potiphar, goes all the way up to second in command. Uh, his, Potiphar's wife lies about him. He finds himself in prison again. He serves there in prison. Not bitter, not angry, serving God, honoring God. He's in prison. He ends up being basically the guy in charge of everybody in the prison. Interprets a couple of dreams for some important people in the life of Pharaoh. Asks them a very simple request. He says, hey, remember me. Don't forget me. They do forget him for two years. Again, not bitter, not angry. He just looks at it as God's at work. Then all of a sudden he finds himself being cleaned up. Nice clothes put on him again. Standing before Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh wants to know about a dream, and Joseph looks at him and says, I can't interpret it, but my God can. Interprets the dream, gives Pharaoh some advice, and Pharaoh takes the advice. The next thing you know, we have Joseph as really the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, or most probably at that point, the known world. Joseph has properly interpreted a dream that there's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Joseph's in charge of the whole economic thing there for the land of Egypt. Meanwhile, his daddy and his brothers who are over in Canaan have no idea that he's still alive. And they find themselves making their way to Egypt to get food. They finally get, get there and they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Eventually, they're all reunited. Joseph brings his family there and they live in the land of Goshen, including his dad. So now they're all a family together in this pagan land called Egypt. It comes to a point now that, jo- that Jacob, um, who is Joseph's father, is now 147 years old. He has been in Egypt for 17 years. His life is now coming to an end. And so normally I was going to just talk about, take one Sunday and talk about Jacob's death. But here's what's unique about this. When you get to Genesis chapter 47, 48, 49 in there, you find almost three, a little over three chapters are devoted to his death. Now what's interesting is that often in Scripture, in Genesis through Revelation, it's a book about life, not about death. So very little is little attention is often given to somebody's death in the Bible. That's just kind of the, the, the pattern that we see. And yet, when we come to Jacob's death, more space in the book of Genesis is dedicated to Joseph's de- Jacob's death than the entire creation story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. So, as you look at it, there's something to be said for the significance of why does the writer of Genesis spend so much time talking about Jacob's death? So we're going to spend a couple of weeks. We're going to look at the. We're going to look at Jacob and his relationship to Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh this week, and then next week, Jacob in relationship to his kids, and then Jacob's actual death and burial and 
and all that, because I think there's a lot of lessons packed in all of these in this story. So with that in mind, um, let's jump to the text. Here's what it says. Genesis 47, the end. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. The years of his life were 147. When the time drew Neil for Israel to die. Now, notice we, we, he's, used, he's referred to a lot as Israel. We'll talk about why that's important next week. But Jacob, Israel, they're the same person. He called his son Joseph and said to him, If I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh. Promise me that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to himself, and Israel, or Jacob, worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Now, so you have that event. Then sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. And Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come. Israel rallied his strength, sat on his bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me. And he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make a community of people. I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, before I came to you, here will be reckoned as mine. He said, I'm going to adopt your kids. Ephraim and Asa will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are. Any children born to you after them will be yours in the territory they inherit, and they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning, now it goes into a little bit of history. As I returned from Padam, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. That was Joseph's mother. And he said, while we were still in the way, a little distance from Ephrath, and so I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. That's where Rachel was buried. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? These are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now, Israel's eyes were failing because of the old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him. His father kissed him and embraced him. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has showed me, to, has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right hand and Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and he brought him close to them. But Israel reached out and with his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed them, Joseph, and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of the fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. When Joseph saw his fathers placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. Literally, the text says, he was angry. He was hot with anger. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it to Ephraim's head, to the Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. It almost gives the impression of a knockdown, dragout fight between these two. And said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people. He too will become a great. Nevertheless, 
The younger brother will be greater than his descendants and will become a group of nations. And he blessed them that day and said, Your name Israel will pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you I will give one more ridge of land than to your brothers, the ridge that I took from the Amorites and my sword and my bow. So let's make sure we understand the story, and then we'll get to um, some application for us. Um, in this story, you basically have Jacob or Israel coming to the end of his life journey. First thing he does is he brings Joseph in. Before he gets too ill, he brings Joseph in. He says, okay, Joseph, I need you to promise that you're not going to bury me here. Now, you need to understand when you look at this text, one of the things that you, that becomes apparent is this idea. This isn't, in our world, we look at this and we think that this is like, oh, he's picking which cemetery he wants to go to. That's not what this is. There is a heartfelt idea behind what, what Jacob is, is asking. Because you see, he is a follower of Yahweh. He's a follower of God. And for 17 years, he has been surrounded by pagan gods. For 17 years, he has been surrounded in a pagan land. This is not home for him. This is not the land his God promised him. This is not the, God, the land that, that he thought he should have. This is not the land that he wants his family to visit if they're going to visit his, his, his burial site. He wants to be with his people. So he brings Joseph in, and in a traditional way, he makes this promise. And, and, and it's not just when Joseph goes, okay, that's what I'll do. He's like, no, 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 you swear to me. And there was a covenant idea. We're not sure exactly what it means. Often they would put a hand under the thigh or under the, the butt right there and, and make the promise. That was kind of a cultural thing. Um, and so there's, that's probably the idea. And he says, no, 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 you can't just tell me you're going to do this. I want you to, I want you to make an oath that you will do this. And Joseph says, fine. Then he brings in his brothers. Now, one of the things that you see in this passage, and we'll, we're going to talk at length about it next week, is this idea of a blessing. Um, in the Jewish household, even today, in a traditional Jewish home, on Sabbath, or we would call it Sabbath Shabbat, um, one of the things that happens is you, you do a blessing with each kid or, or, or you do the kids together, and usually you separate the boys and the girls. One of the things that is prayed over in a traditional Jewish blessing for the boys is, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, it's significant, not will you be like Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Ephraim and Manasseh. Two children that were not even born in Canaan, in Israel. One of the, a lot of Jewish people have a lot of ideas on why Ephraim and Manasseh were chosen. There are two main ideas. One idea is this. One idea is that these are the two children who were born in a pagan land who still served their Jewish God. So even though they were in a foreign land, even though they were brought up in a foreign land, they still served God, Yahweh. The other is the idea that when you go through Scripture from Genesis up to this point, these are the first two brothers that you see that don't fight. There's not an internal struggle like there is with Jacob and Esau. And if you'll think about this for a minute, in this scene, what is happening is you have Jacob 
you have Jacob now blessing two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Asa. Now, now, if you'll think about this for a second, why are all of a sudden they getting a blessing? We're not ble- we don't normally bless the grandchildren, we bless the children. But you see, the oldest son had forfeited his right to be the firstborn. Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel. Joseph is going to get a blessing, but not. But what happens is often the firstborn got a double blessing, a double portion. And in this case, what you have is you have, got, you have, you have Jacob blessing Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And what, what Jacob does in this scene is Joseph brings his children up and he puts them so that his right hand, which is often the hand of power, is, is normally would go to the firstborn. And he, so he, he puts them in the order. So this is the oldest, this is the youngest. He's now in front of him, and when, when Jacob goes to get the blessing, he switches his hands. And Joseph's going, whoa, 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 I don't want you to make a mistake here. You're old, and you get things mixed up. And you, you, okay, no, no, let's get it right. And he's like, no, 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 I know exactly what I'm doing. He says, because the younger is actually going to become greater than the older. Now think about this for a second. In Jacob and Esau, is that not what happened? The younger became greater than the older. By the way, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, you're going to see this a lot. Moses and Aaron, who was the younger? Moses. David and his brothers. David was the youngest. So for those of you who are like second born or the last born or whatever else, take hope. (laughs) You'll be okay. You'll be okay. So, I mean, you have this scenario played out, okay? So, so you, you get this thing. And so he comes to him and he says, here's what you guys need to know. And as he gives him this blessing, one of the things that he says is he says, you need to understand that God has been my leader for my entire life. God has led me. God led me away from Esau. God led me away from Laban. God even led me down to Egypt in order to preserve our family. So the other thing is you need to understand that God's been my angel, my protector. God has taken care of me. When my brother wanted to kill me, God preserved my life. When Laban was upset with me and I, and I fled, God led me, God led me to the place that we ended up living. When I had to go back and confront Esau, God protected me. In fact, it was there that he wrestles with an angel at Nile. And then God protected him during a time of famine, and Canaan brings him down to Egypt for 17 years to take care of him. And he, as he's giving a blessing, he says, you need to understand God has been my leader and protector. It's kind of his way of saying, listen, the one thing I've learned in my life is that God's been my leader and protector, and I want you guys as my grandchildren to understand that. So that's the story that we have with Jacob and um, Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh. So let's talk about some things that, as you and I head into our week, some things that I think this passage teaches us that can help us. Um, Here's the first one. I think that as Christians, one of the things that is lacking often is that we spend a lot of time focused on life, but very little time focused on death. 
You have to understand our culture to understand what we have done when it comes to this issue of death. In the, you go back a hundred years in this country, back to the 1920s, death was a normal part of life. If you wanted to eat chicken tonight, you would go home after this service and you would butcher a chicken. It would die. If you wanted to have hamburger, you would butcher one of your cattle or goat or whatever. I know hamburger's not made from goat. You understand. Okay. You're like, wow, you really are a city kid. No, I get that. You know, you, know, you would butcher a hog. In other words, <clears throat> you were associated. Death was just associated with the normal, everyday part of life. When somebody got sick, they would often be in the home, and the doctor would come and visit them in the home. If they died, when they died, the wake would often be in the living room. Even when you went to church, when you walked out of the church, there was often a cemetery off to the side or across the street. You couldn't even walk into church on Sunday without being reminded of the idea that death is a part of life. You were surrounded by it within your culture. Now, in our culture, we have butcher shops. You know, over the years, we, my wife and I have probably raised something like 1,000 to 1,500 chickens. Do you know how many I've butchered in my lifetime? Zero. Because what we would do is we'd load them in the back of our pickup. We'd drive to Logan, Iowa. We would unload them out of the pickup. We'd go to the car wash, wash out the back of the pickup. We'd drive to Omaha. We'd go to dinner in a movie. We'd drive back. They were all in their little body bags. We then brought them home. <laughs> we, we gave them away and, and sold them, and we paid for half. And we, So we've raised, we raised over 1,000 chickens and never butchered one once. Never had this. Now I've seen them die, and then we had people come over and butcher their own. That was not, you know, that was a, that was an experience. Because um, the guy who came over had a hatchet, and it was dull, and it was like, oh, man. at least sharpen that thing. I know that much, but anyway, um, I mean, I say that to say, look, that was all a part of it. Now we take it to the processor. And it comes back with your name stamped on it and, and what it was and all wrapped up and all of that. You don't have to deal with that. Um, what happens often when somebody gets sick? We take them to a hospital. And many times, that's where a lot of them die. Not because of the hospital, but because of health issues. and Everybody's trying to save their life and doing all they can. And then when they do die, what do we do? We take the body where? To a funeral home. And so we go through this whole process in our world with death being something that is detached and something that is way far away and something that we don't want to think about until we have to think about it. And one of the things that I would suggest for you is that you really think about what is your theology, what is your belief about death. First of all, biblically, you're going to meet your maker, so you better make sure that you have 
a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because one of the questions God is, the question God is going to have for you is what you do with Jesus Christ. And if you rejected him, he's going to reject you. If you accepted him, he accepts you. I mean, that's, the Bible's very clear about that. So, but one of the questions that I often struggle with is a lot of people don't think about, so the first time somebody deals with death is when they have the appointment at the funeral home and they got to make all of these emotional decisions that have a huge financial consequence and they never thought about it. I'm a big proponent of talking about it while you're alive. I'm a big proponent of having those discussions now. When I get ready to marry a couple, one of the last sessions I have with them is I pull out this. I give them a copy and I explain the whole thing to them. Um, if you've ever seen this, this is Five Wishes. And I got it when I was, Carl used to give this to people at the nursing home all the time. And that's where I came across it. I've been using it for years. Five Wishes. The person I want to make care decisions for me when I can't, the kind of medical treatment I want, how comfortable I want to be, how do people, how should people treat me, and what I want my loved ones to know. Because I tell them, I say, look, you may be put in a position where you have to make decisions for your spouse. You better know what they want. My family knows. I've had this discussion with them so many times, they're tired of hearing it. But I've, had, I've, I've explained to my family what I want, and, and I've explained to my family that if some certain situations happen, you don't get the choice to make the call for me. I've already made it. You are simply my voice when I can't speak. So you don't get the choice of, well, you know, you know I really want Dad around. No, I've made the call because I'm a firm believer, and just because you can doesn't mean you should. Now, a lot of things we can do medically that I've watched over the years that we have done for people in order to gain them an extra day or week or month or year even because they don't have a theology, they don't have an understanding of death. And one of the things you see in this story is Jacob, before all of this starts to happen, he sits down with Joseph and says, okay, right now, let's talk about when I die. And I have people go, well, you know, I believe that if you start talking about it, it's going to happen. Duh. It's going to happen. You are not going to live here forever. At some point, your heart will stop. Your lungs will take their last breath. It will happen. So why not go ahead and make sure you're ready for all of that? Well, it just makes me uncomfortable. It's going to happen because you know what? If you don't, if you don't figure it all out now, somebody else is going to have to figure it out. And one, one of the things that I observe is this. Often you have to figure this out in a time when you're emotionally wiped out, often physically wiped out. I've watched people make financial commitments to things that don't matter. The state of Iowa requires a burial vault. Now, I'm not talking about a casket, I'm talking about a burial vault. You know, you can spend $20,000 on the vault that you put the casket in? You know how long you see a burial vault at a cemetery? 
Listen, I, I, I say this is important because, first of all, you've got to be ready to meet your God. And secondly, you've got to be ready for what you're going to leave behind for the people who are now going to have to walk through that process. And so I know when I was down visiting my mom, this came up. My dad was in poor health. We didn't know literally from hour to hour whether or not he was going to make it. So I got up that morning and I said, okay, so mom, I said, so what bothers you? What's on your list today that you're concerned about? What can I take care of while I'm down here? She said, I was up all night. I thought if the, the nursing home calls and says that he passed away, I don't know what we would do. And I said, well, you and dad had all this set up. She said, yeah, we had it all set up when we were in, but everything's set up for Kentucky. And I said, then let's get, I said, let's, I can check it. We'll check it off the box. So we went to a funeral home and we made arrangements. My, my dad came out fine. He lived under four, three, four years after that. But it took it off her plate. And I looked at mom and said, by the way, mom, while we're here, we're going to get all your stuff taken care of too. Um, we're not going to, you know, so my mom's already picked out. My mom picked out the casket. I don't have to. It's awesome because now we can go and deal with the grief and the loss and all of that and not be focused on all that other stuff, you know. And I, I just say this because I think we're so afraid to talk about this stuff. One of the things you see in this story is Jacob brings, brings Joseph in at the beginning and goes, okay, I am not going to be buried here. Take me back. And we'll talk about it in two weeks on, on what all that entails. Take me back. Second thing, I think you see in this story that um, is kind of amazing, I guess, at least in my, in my mind, is that Jacob is concerned about his legacy after he leaves here. As you get older, you start to, I think, realize what's really important and what's really not. Um. Joseph or Jacob asks, I want to be with my fathers. And again, it's not just, I want, this is the cemetery plot I want. It's, I want to be associated with that. And what you watch in Jacob's life, Jacob, who had been known as the supplanter, the deceiver, is now the worshiper. You, you see him saying, I, I, in essence, I, I want to go back to where my, my worship world is. And he even talks about, the, the different places with Rachel and other things that are so important to him. What are you going to leave behind when you leave this place? Oh, you know, you don't understand. I got my IRAs all set up. And I got look, That's just money. What are you going to leave behind that lasts? Oh, you don't understand. We, 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 we put everything in a trust. What are you going to leave behind? the last. One of the things that Jacob does is he blesses his grandchildren. And it's interesting because, you know, when, when you read this story, you're thinking of like little kids, aren't you? He's been there 17 years. They were born before he got there. These are probably early 20-year-olds as his grandchildren. And he's saying, here is the future that I see for you. Uh, can I show it? We're going to talk a lot about this next week. Have you, do you have a future in mind for your grandkids or your kids? 
Have you shared with them the things that you see in their life that are encouraging to your heart? Because one of our roles with our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, is to bless them. Um, I think it's like eight times in this pa- these passages, blessing or blessed is used as a verb, six times as a noun. It's, it's amazing how it's just packed full of this idea of, this is what I see for you. And we have a group of kids who are being raised to believe there's no hope in a future for this world. And we're really good at, at, at telling them how bad the world is. Okay, so let's talk about how bad the world is today. You have air conditioning? You know how many people in this world don't? You walk into a restroom with a toilet? You flush your toilet with cleaner water than most of the world drinks. Um, how bad is it? Well, you know, we're going to have to cut back. Really? Our world of cutting back um, is the world's concept of, you know, they, they, they would love to cut back to what we have to cut back to. Well, we're going to do all the things that I had planned this summer because, you know, everything's so expensive. You want to go back to butchering your own animal? Put this in perspective, folks. We get frustrated with life in our first world problems when we go to a drive-up and they say, will you pull ahead? We will bring it out. My world has collapsed. I have to go wait for my food. You didn't have to kill it, clean it, cook it, and eat it, and then clean up after it. We are so spoiled. I'm not saying feel bad about it. But please don't complain about it. Because we, and we need, to, we need our kids to understand, you are so blessed to be in this country. You are so blessed to have the life that you have. We forget that. But we have a generation coming behind us that they need hope and they need encouragement and we're the ones that need to be giving it to them. Third idea is not just this idea of being ready for death, and not, not just this idea of leaving behind a legacy, um, if you will. But what have you learned about God in your lifetime? Jacob, Israel, has his two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Here's what he says. Again, I just want you to picture, picture the scene now. He's probably sitting, probably not on a big chair like this. He's sitting there. He's sitting there with his grandchildren. One's here, one's here. Like this. And he says, kids, I want you to know. One thing that's happened in my 147 years of life, my God has led me every step of the way. He'll lead you too. You just got to trust him. He led me here, even in the death of your grandmother. He was there. 
He's also been my protector. He's protected me. He has protected me in so many ways. When your uncle, or your great uncle, wanted to kill me, he protected me. When I had to face him, after the last thing that he said to me was, the next time I see you, I will wipe you off the face of the earth. God and I wrestled. And I would not go until God gave me a blessing. And God did, and God protected me. And you know what? I've been in Egypt for the last 17 years, and God's protected me the whole time. Grandkids, God will lead you, and he will protect you as he has led and protected me. That's the role of granddad. That's the role that he's playing with his grandchildren. He's sharing with them things that God has done. Here's my question to you this morning. What have you seen God do in your life? Try to synthesize it down to one or two or three things. You know, as I was thinking about this message and thinking about, you know, 30 years here, I've looked back, and and the thing that has just amazed me is when I start putting the pieces together, I realize that God's timing has been absolutely perfect. My entire ministry here has hinged, in some cases, on phone calls or a chance meeting or an opportunity to, to see something. For those of you who don't know the story, the first time that I came to preach here was because I got a call a couple of weeks before that said, hey, we'd like you to come down and preach. I got that call on a Saturday night, and I said, look, I got, I got meetings scheduled for the next couple of weeks. It's going to be a little while before I get down there, but I'll come down there in Father's Day, whatever it was. What they didn't know was that was on a Saturday evening, on a Sunday afternoon, I was meeting with the board in Canton, South Dakota, at a church, a Baptist church in Canton, South Dakota. We had candidated there. We had been involved there. They had asked us if we would come as pastor. We had toured the parsonage. The pastor was 64 years old. He was going to retire at 65. He had a family up north in South Dakota. He was going to move out of the area and go up there. I was going to work as his youth pastor for a year, and then I was going to take over the church. On Sunday morning after the service, we were meeting with the board, and I was supposed to tell them yes or no. The night before, I get a call to ask about coming here to fill pulpit once. I'm out with the board the next day. And I said, guys, I cannot tell you why, but I need more time. I said, there's just something, and I don't know what it is. So they said, well, how much time do you need? I said, you know, give, give me a month or two. <clears throat> we had no commitment from this place, but we felt that God wanted us here. A couple of months later, we told him no. A year later, when the pastor left, they called, and they said, hey, what are you doing? I said, well, I said, I'm kind of bivocational. I'm working here, and I'm filling pulpit down here and stuff like that. And said, well, we've got like a real job for you. 
if you want to come up here. I said, no, guys, I can't tell you why, but I just don't. I think this is where God wants us. Um, everything, it, again, it hinged on a 20-hour period of time. So when my kids are struggling, down the line when my grandkids are struggling, I can sit down with them and say, I can't tell you necessarily what to do here, but here's what I can tell you. If you will trust God, his timing is always perfect. What are you going to say? What have you learned about God in your journey? I want to challenge you with that because Jacob was able to communicate that with his grandkid. So three ideas as we close. Yeah. Be ready to meet your God and be ready to leave this world behind and make it as easy as possible for the people that you're leaving. Secondly, what do you want your legacy to be? Somebody's going to stand up at a funeral and say a bunch of things about you. Somebody's probably going to have to order a headstone and chisel in a couple of words about you, a couple of adjectives. What do you want those adjectives to be? What's your legacy? What do you want them to say? And finally, the idea here is as you look at your life and you look at how God has worked in your life. What are the big things? What are the things that really come to your mind about this is one thing I want people to know about my God? How has he worked? What's he done? So I end with this. Death is inevitable. It's part of life. We've always got to be ready and leave a legacy that benefits the people who come after us. Jacob honors God in his last days, and he focuses on the future. It's my prayer that everyone is ready for life beyond this planet. It's my goal to impact the world long after I'm gone. Let's pray. Lord, use us. It's so easy to get wrapped up in this thing we call life. The reality is, Lord, death is more of a real part of this world than we like to think about. So help us. Lord, may each of us be ready. And Lord, until you call us home, until you are done with us, may we serve you faithfully. May we share with others that which you are doing in and through our lives. And may people see Christ in all we do. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing the first verse. He giveth more grace. Let's stand as we sing.
thanks. You can be seated. This morning, if you are ready to meet your God, you know that Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. You have no question that when you stand before him, you can point to Christ, who is your Lord, who is your Savior. Um, We want you to join with us as we celebrate communion. We end every service this way. Somewhere around you, there's this little cup with juice and a little wafer and cellophane on top, and you, um, you'll, you can figure it all out. But um, we do this every week. And the reason we do it is a couple reasons. Number one, we do it as a reminder that we have Christ in common. Common union, communion. We also do it as a reminder that Jesus Christ loved us gave his life for us so that we could live differently. And if that's your prayer this morning, we want you to join with us as we celebrate together his body represented by a little wafer, his blood which we shed for us so that we could have forgiveness of sin represented by the Jews. And uh, it's our way of remembering and saying thank you. And help me, Lord, this week to live in such a way that people see you in me. And uh, if that's your prayer, we encourage you to join with us. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thanks. Help us to live accordingly this week, that you would be honored and glorified in all we say and do. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for coming. Before you walk out of this building, encourage somebody. If there's a face that you don't know, ask for a name. That was one of the things we talked about Friday night is, you know, it used to be we knew everybody's name that came in here. Now it's a little bit harder to do. So uh, we don't want to get to that point. So uh, introduce yourself or put a name to it and you go, well, it's embarrassing. They don't know your name either. So just go with it. All right. Lord bless you. Have a great week.